When I was in Lisbon recently at the House of Beautiful Business conference, I had one of those lovely moments, a moment of meeting a kindred spirit. Now, it's not the same as meeting someone who is interesting or lovely. I mean, that's great as well, of course. But with a kindred spirit, there's a recognition of you and I, we are similarly weird and interesting. So I gave Stephen D'Souza my book, and Stephen gave me his new book, Not Being. It's a great book. It's wonderfully designed. It's broad-ranging. And it tries to navigate similar big questions that I mull over. Who am I? What's my obligation to myself? What's my obligation to things that aren't me? And in one section where he was reflecting on getting beyond the self-help and self-development world, he wrote, Now I find more truth in poetry than in prose, in nature than in classrooms. I've come to the point where I'm tired of the narrative of development and exhausted by the imperative for self-improvement. I'm ending the search. I want to enjoy life on the other side of these personal development projects. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, we edit this podcast, so you don't typically hear the first question I ask my guests. And it's very big, it's very open. I say, so who are you? What's your story? Now, sometimes people plunge into that with gusto. Sometimes there's a bit of a <laughs> nervous laugh. But Peter Bregman, though, he sat with this question longer than most of us, and he came at it in a way that reminds me of that passage from D'Souza. I run a leadership intensive program, and I do this exercise in it where two people are standing opposite each other, and they take turns, but the first person's turn, where one person just whispers in their ear, who are you? And they have to answer. And they do it like 50 or 100 times. And it keeps changing. Who are you? I'm a father. Who are you? I'm an executive. Who are you? I'm a coach. Who are you? I'm sensitive. Who are you? I'm bewildered. Who are you? I'm in love. Like, who are you? So who are you? And now who are you? And now who are you? And who is Peter? Well, he is more than his resume of being a coach and a teacher and an author. I really love being valued and helpful. Like, so I, in my coaching work, I love moving my body on the leadership intensive. I do dancing every day and like with people. And I just think that, you know, the mind should be still, but the body should move. And so I sort of try to keep those things going. And I'm a dad to three awesome kids. I try to be a good husband. And yeah, I like to read. Now, one of the differences between Peter and me comes around feelings. I tend to be a bit stuck in my head and then, ironically, spend time thinking and worrying about being too stuck in my head. Whereas Peter literally has written a book called Leading with Emotional Courage. But he'll be the first to tell you that feeling isn't easy. Feeling is hard. It's hard to feel things. It's why we do all sorts of things to not feel things. We eat or we watch Netflix. Or we eat and we watch Netflix at the same time. And you know I'm asking for me here. How do we increase our capacity to feel when feeling is so hard? The way you increase your capacity to feel is by feeling. Mm. It's like anything. Like The way to increase your capacity to take risks is by taking smaller risks. Right. There's little things. Like you can set your watch to beep every hour, and when it beeps, just literally take a breath for 30 seconds 
if the only thing you get out of this is a breath, then you're good, right? 30 seconds. And let's do it now. Like take a breath and then ask yourself, what am I feeling in this moment? What are you feeling? Well, there is a level of pleasure in talking to you and because I always enjoy that. There's an underlying current of sadness, I think, mm-hmm. which I suspect is connected to the book coming up in about three months' time and just feeling behind on everything I'm trying to do in terms of getting a book out into the world. Uh-huh. And then a kind of meta level around that, which is being sad that I'm sad about being overly caught up in my book launch. Right. <laughs> you know better than that, Michael. This is the book launch. What the hell is right. going on here? So I think that's what I'm noticing. Yeah. Beautiful work. Now let me ask you a second question. The sadness. Mm. So feel the sadness. And my question is, where do you feel it? Where in your body do you feel it? I feel tightly in my throat and I feel it kind of across my eyes. Beautiful. So that's it. Ask yourself this question of like, what am I feeling and where am I feeling it? Mm. And this idea of where I'm feeling it is so important because we can get overwhelmed with emotions and feel like we are that emotion. In English, Mm. you say, I am angry or Mm -hmm. I am sad. Well, no, you're not. You like have sadness and it's living somewhere in your body Right. and take a moment to feel it. And then you realize, oh, so it doesn't overwhelm me. I can feel it. And I want to share a very quick story, Michael, which is that as I was learning and I continue to learn about this, I was in a group with people, like a process group, and I was with a woman and we were engaged and I was listening to her story. Her brother died and she was crying and she was feeling really sad. And I listened to her and I empathized and I countered, sort of tried to make it better for her, right? I didn't want her to be sad. And she saw what I was doing and she said something that really touched me and was very profound. And she said, you know, listen, I like my sadness. (laughs) I like my sadness. First of all, my sadness is one of the few things I have left of my brother. Mm. Like, don't take that away from me. And also, I'm okay feeling happy also, but I'm okay feeling sad. Like, it feels tender to me and it feels good. And I feel tears in my eyes as I'm saying this now. Like, it really touched me. And I realized I like my sadness too. But, you know, I grew up in a home where it was constantly like, are you happy? Are you happy? Right. Are you happy, darling? Is the joke we say that my mother asks everyone in my family, my kids, are you happy, darling? You know, like (laughs) the goal is to be happy. And I think the goal is actually to be full, to be robust, to have like access to the full and not to hold on to anything. Like you don't have to stay in sad, Mm. but don't push it away either because there's something like you could feel sad. And then if you feel sad about feeling sad, enjoy that too, right? (laughs) But you don't have to cling to it. You don't have to hold on to it. Yeah, thank you. Well, an attempt to move this conversation away from me being on a therapist couch. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, no, no. I love that. I love that. Thank you. What are you going to read to us today, Peter? So I went a little counter to the instructions. I love that. I'm (laughs) sorry. I feel like I'm apologizing a lot on this call. 
it was hard for me to pick a book mm-hmm. and that I like this book has changed my life. There are so many. And it's interesting. I was having a conversation with Marshall Goldsmith, who you mentioned earlier yesterday. And I was sort of saying to him, look, because of my podcast, I get sent so over a hundred books a year, like yeah. easy. And I'm reading and looking through like somewhere between a hundred and 200 books a year on leadership and various elements of it. And to be totally honest with you, I'm kind of bored. Mm. So many say versions of the same thing, and I right, read yeah, it, and I sort of like know what a publisher minus feels like. 5% of yeah, the same yeah, story. Exactly. Yep. And there's like a main idea that's often very interesting. Yeah. And then I look at what are the books, like I'm looking at my bookshelf now, at the books that I keep on my bookshelf and I've had for 20 or 30 exactly. years and that I keep. And they're books of poetry or they're books of like a lot of Buddhist books, actually, which Mm. is the conversation I was having with Marshall, who's Buddhist. Some books on writing, you know, but even in the middle of the books on writing, there's a Thich Nhat Hanh and a Rumi and a Richard Rohr, who's a Christian theologian. And then if you ask me, what am I actually reading? What I'm actually reading are like young adult fiction, because I try to read the same books that my kids read. Like I'm in a book club with my 15-year-old daughter, so I'm oh, trying to keep up with right. them because they read more than me. What's good on your YA list at the moment, just as an aside? I'm reading, they really got into the Shadow and Bone series. Oh, yeah. So Fantastic. I read, but she wouldn't let me read Shadow and Bone until I read, there was like two versions. I can't remember. I've read all five books now, but there were like two series and she right. forced me to That's read right. the less interesting, maybe she forced me to read the Shadow and Bone before I read the more yes. exciting one that can't remember. Well, as a build on that, Gideon of the Ninth, fantastic. Way oh, book. excellent. Hasn't had the profile it should have and is a great kind of sci-fi fantasy YA read. So Okay, I will tip. pick that up and I will yeah. pass it to my children. Sarah J. Mass also, who wrote the Throne of Glass series, was terrific. Oh, that I don't know. Okay, that's good to And know. I read her first book, which was Throne of Glass, and I thought, you know, this is sort of derivative of like all these other mm-hmm. books and it's not very creative and et cetera. And each book got better and better and better. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered the throne of glass. She wrote when she was 16 years old <laughs> and massive bestseller and everything. I'm like, you know what? It's okay to be derivative. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. like and it turned out that she was building a foundation for something that was very, very brilliant and really well done. Great to know. So, but what I'm going to read to you is in my leadership intensive, I have been over the last 10 years, I read poetry in that, like poetry is a part of that poetry and dance and getting in your body and like accessing other parts of you. It's the leadership intensive is very much about emotional courage, about the willingness to. And so now this poetry book is 183 pages and that's more than 183 poems. It's probably around 200 poems. And I'm going to read to you out of this book. That's I've brilliant. constructed over that. the last decade. So this is the first. You're the first person to go, I'm reading from my own common book of stuff that I've collected over the years. So we talked about this before we hit record, and I'm going to ask you to read two poems, and then we're going to talk about the poems and also how the poems talk to each other. Beautiful. What's the first poem you want to read for us? So the first poem is called The Invitation mm. by Araya Mountain Dream. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. 
I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you've touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from the fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. If you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty, even when it's not pretty every day. And if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else fails away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moment. Thank you, Peter. That is wonderful. I mean, that speaks to, I mean, I just spent the whole time nodding my head going all of the above. What's the companion poem? Is from Rumi, and this mm. is a few thousand years old. It is, yeah. It's his poem, The Guest House. He has mm. so many. To Love choose. this, yeah. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Peter, what's the silver thread that connects these two poems, do you think? Looking at the first poem, it is so easy <laughs> for us to get caught up in the minutia of, I don't mean this in a bad way, of the materialism with which we live our lives. Like we have to live our lives with a certain amount of materialism. Like we have to pay for groceries and we need mm -hmm. to live somewhere. And, 
and also we want we want to be generous with people around us or we want i want the new macbook pro that just came out <laughs> like we have these material needs but it's very easy to let them overwhelm our experience of life mm. I love reading these poems because they remind me, like every time I have a leadership intensive and I read these, I remember, yeah, like right. waking up after a really, really hard night to feed the children. Now my children are old enough and one of the things I'm trying to get them to do is feed themselves. <laughs> right. Metaphorically and literally. Yeah, right, metaphorically. Yeah. It's like, that's what we have to do. And it really is who we are. And I want to remind myself of that for myself. Mm. And from that foundation, like, this human experiment as a guest house, like this sense of like, we are, I mean, I feel so, so clearly that I live my life in relation to emotion. Like if I'm scared of something, I'm not scared of that thing. I'm scared of how I'll feel if that thing happened. Mm. Like if I'm excited about something, I'm not excited about a thing. I'm excited about how I'll feel if that right. thing happens. And so, like, I think the essence of our lives and feeling a lot mm. is in engaging with our emotions. And I think we do so, so much. We organize our lives in many cases so that we don't have to feel things, so that we protect ourselves from feeling things. Yeah. So both of those work together to say, all those things we do to protect ourselves from feeling, yeah. from being true to ourselves, from engaging clearly. You know, you and I have had this conversation, Michael. I mean, we're both, you know, neither of us are old, but we're both older. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And we're both accomplished. We've mm -hmm. both achieved a lot. We both have and are enough, mm. right? And it's taken a while to get there for me to yeah. feel like I'm enough. Yeah. And to recognize that my feeling like I'm enough is not a direct link to like what I've created in the world and what, you know, it's easy for me to spout out all sorts of accomplishments. Yeah. But, you know, those are just boosting up my feeling of not feeling enough. Right. Yeah. Well, Peter, let me ask you, knowing that you're enough and I'm enough, but that you're enough and that you've already achieved a bunch of things that kind of can be glittery trophies on a shelf somewhere. What are you ambitious for now? Great. It's such a great question. It's such a great question. Because I am ambitious, mm. but surprisingly not for the things that I was ambitious about before. My ambition and my challenge, I mean, I'm going a little slow here because I want to think about it as I'm answering, Yeah, is I've basically stripped almost everything out of my business, except for the coaching that I'm doing, right. right? Because I really looked at everything I was doing and I was sort of saying, what moves me and what doesn't? And I was doing all sorts of stuff that I was doing for reasons that were beneficial business-wise, business maybe, yeah. but not moving me. And what it came down to is I'm really like moved. And it's actually what my new book is about in some ways too. It's like, Although the title I sort of regret because it feels so provocative, which we were trying to do at the time. Yeah. You know, you can change other people. But what I am ambitious for is to engage in deep, supportive, productive relationships with people. Mm. And I also 
have let go of my ambition to try to influence millions and millions of people directly. Right. But what I do want to do is influence people of power, mm. people who have influence. Like I want to be able to influence them in ways where I can focus on the relationship with them as a positive, productive relationship and support them and then let them be the front people with massive influence, whether that's yeah. a CEO of a company with 10,000 people or whatever, where I know that I'm having an impact on them that is reverberating broadly. And I'm more interested in a smaller number of foundational relationships, intense relationships where I could be helpful. And I know that that will ripple out. That's what I'm ambitious for. I mean, the, your book title is interesting. You can change other people because it feels counter to the narrative that most of us have absorbed, which is like you can't change other people. Work on yourself. It's hard enough to figure out how to change yourself. You might influence other people, but you can't change them. And it also feels that, you know, having had this conversation about be present, feel what's important, feel joy, feel sorrow, figure out how to feed the kids. There's not a whole lot in that, in the poetry around, and by the way, change as many other people as you can. What's at the heart of this new book? People suffer a mm. lot, right? There's a lot of suffering. And we make it worse. And I can see places where I'm still doing this in my life, mm. where someone close to me is suffering and it pisses me off, right? Because I get angry, I get frustrated, I get annoyed. They're not showing up the way I know that they could. They're not living up to their potential. They're making my life harder. They're <laughs> like, whatever it is, I am angry and annoyed. And so... And we do this personally, we do this organizationally, right? Mm. And I'll criticize them or I'll tell them what they should stop doing or I'll tell them what the problem or what the issue is. In organizations, we call this feedback, right? <laughs> and we say, I just want to be honest, you know, like... I'm just going to be radically candid with you at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> You're pissing me off. You're a nightmare. Right. I think this radical candor thing, I like him a lot and I know that this is not how she intended it. But I think... So this is uh, Kim Scott, the author of Kim Radical Scott, Candor. Kim the yeah, author of Radical yeah. Candor. And I think the way in which people wield it mm. is as a weapon a little yeah, bit. Cool. I'm just weaponized. being honest with you. Like, yeah. I'm going to be radically candid with you. Yeah. You're an asshole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, that's not helpful, right? No. And it's also not radically candid. That's not what she means. Yeah. Right. That's not what she means. There's a balance of care and honesty. And it mm -hmm. is true that it is helpful. But we all are learning how to be honest without learning how to be helpful. Yeah. And what the book is about is either what replaces feedback or what comes after feedback is the first step. It's four steps. And the first step is to shift from being a critic to being an ally. Mm. right like how can i help in this situation you are in a situation in which you're frustrated rather than add to that frustration by criticizing your predicament and you how do i come in in support of you how do i come in and help you it's what we do as coaches it's what you do right. as a coach michael it's like you don't come at someone who's struggling with a problem to criticize them you're coming in to help them and they see you as an ally and then they work with you 
and you are able to help them get from point A to point B, to help their lives get better in certain ways. Well, Peter, let me interrupt. I want to ask you a question about this. This is the trickiness of that, which is that statement can also be weaponized, but in a different way, which is never face up to the struggle. Because you're like, oh, I can only be an ally. We can only be nice. We can only be kind. So let's not talk about the broken thing. So how do you shine a light on the thing that is a struggle and is not working and acknowledge that reality Yeah, and walk the line between soft-soaping it and pretending it's not there and being cruel about it and just adding to the pain? Yeah. The first step in being an ally, the very first step in the first step is empathy. Right. Is empathy. If you can't empathize, you will never be an ally. And when you say something like, yeah, 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 I get it, but that is not empathy, right? <laughs> yeah. Everything before but is a lie. Yeah. Like that is how it's heard. Everything you say before the word but is read as a lie. So the very first step is empathy. Like, can you be here with me? And if you can truly be here with me, then maybe I'll give you permission to help me. Right. But if you can't be here with me, mm. I will never give you permission to help me. Right. There's a formula for initiating a conversation as an ally, which is empathy, confidence, and permission. Right. Like to really be able to empathize, then to express some kind of confidence in them because you wouldn't have had the conversation if you weren't confident in them right. and in the possibilities here. We will get through this sort of confidence. Yeah. 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 Like we could figure this out. Yeah. And then permission. Do you want my help in thinking this through? I just had this conversation with my daughter the older daughter that I talked about, and I don't want to say what it was about, but she came to me complaining about something. And I empathize with her. I really empathize because I really got what she was experiencing. Mm. And then she complained more, and then I empathize <laughs> more, right? And it's her call when the empathy is enough, right? Yeah. It's her call. It's not my call. It's her call. And she'll let you know because she'll stop repeating herself <laughs> when she feels hurt, right? Yeah. And then I'm able to express confidence. And then I said... I started to give her some advice and I stopped myself and I said, hold on, sorry. Do you want to know? Like, do you want my help in thinking this through? And she turned to me and she said, yeah. She goes, thank you so much for asking. <laughs> right. Like, thank you for asking. Yeah. And yes, I would love help. Mm. And I was like, okay, there's this app. <laughs> I but it was a beautiful moment of yeah. connection and allyship. And by the way, I was okay. I've been in conversations like that where I've asked her permission and she goes, no, I don't want to think about it. And yeah. I respect that. Mm -hmm. And because I respect that, and because I say, okay, no problem. I'm here with you. And later, that I'm thinking of a very particular time. Later that afternoon, she came back to me and she said, hey, now I'm ready. I would like to think about it with you. I was oh, like, great. Nice. Yeah. It's her ownership. It's not yeah. my thing. It's her thing. I am helping her with her thing. I'm not helping yeah. her with my thing. So obviously, you know, I wrote the book, The Advice Trap. And so we're just violently agreeing with each uh, other, as this is all about. <laughs> Even whilst I think of a meeting I had yesterday where I'm like, I just didn't really do a good job in any one of those three steps, which is <laughs> annoying. You know, physician, heal thyself. You know, I wrote the book and I have to constantly remind myself, yeah. even though it's so obvious when you read about it, it's counterintuitive. It does take practice. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. it this is a learned practice. Yeah. Where do people most easily get tripped up in that first step? Empathy, confidence, permission. If there's one thing that people listening 
could go, oh, I should try that next time. Where would you point? I think there's places in each of these that we get tripped up, but I think the empathy is the hardest. Mm. Here's how I define empathy. Understanding your story and perspective and opinions and thoughts to your satisfaction. Right. Right. Which means you're the one who decides whether I empathize with you, not me. And that's hard. That's so radical, yeah. That's yeah. hard. It's not like, no, in my head, I've understood what you're saying, so I've empathized. It's like, no, right. it doesn't work like that. Empathy is a transaction, right? Right. That's in relationship. Yeah. And so, like, if I'm going to empathize with you, you will feel heard and seen and understood. Mm-hmm. That's how I define empathy. Right. And so I need to keep checking in with you. I need to say, because I'm not going to know otherwise, I'm going to say, here's what I'm, here's what I'm hearing you to be saying. Yeah. Am I missing something? Am I, did, am I getting it or did I yeah. miss something? And then if she says, no, you've missed something, I'm not going to say, oh, tell me the whole thing again. Yeah. I'm going to say, tell me like what I missed, yeah. but I want to know. Like yeah. I really want to know if I've missed something. Yeah. And That's so. Great listening is so much harder than speaking. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. And listening in a way that conveys listening Mm. is so much harder. But that's really, really important. This is such a great conversation. You and I can talk for ages. But I've got a question that is the perfect build from your teaching around empathy, around did you get it or did I miss something? Here's the question. It's the last question for you. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? I'll just tell you that I don't know that this is what needs to be said. But I'll tell you what comes to me with Mm. this, which is, I know you, Michael, and you know me. And people listening from the outside, you know, we've both written a bunch of books and we both have podcasts and we're both out there in the world and we both speak with confidence and competence. And I think it could be easy to listen to our conversations and feel from the outside, like, well, these guys have it together. Like (laughs) these guys have thought a lot about stuff, have figured it out. In fact, it's only Peter who has it all together because take it from me. (laughs) And I think the thing I want to say is I struggle with this stuff all the time. It's Mm. because I struggle with this stuff that I find it interesting. It's because I struggle with this stuff. I was in a conversation with my wife all morning and I think I did this vaguely, like I did this much better on this call than I did this morning in my conversation with my wife. And I work on it. Like I yeah. care about it and I work on it. And yeah. I'll speak for myself. You might be a guru on a pie. I am not a guru in like my perfect life who like does everything perfectly yeah. and then descends my heavenly perch to share my brilliant wisdom and then go back up to my perfect life. Like I care deeply about this stuff, which is why I think about it and I work on it and I practice it and I work on myself. And it's hard. Living is hard. Yeah. Right? Living is hard and living well is really hard. I mean, it's less hard than living poorly, I think. But on the surface of it, it requires more effort. It requires more effort to live well and live in relationship with people cleanly and well. And so, like, I just want to say, like, 
Yeah, I think we have some answers and we have some thoughts, but this is all a practice. The first step in Peter's model is being an ally. And the first step in the first step is empathy. So that means me understanding you to your satisfaction. Not to my satisfaction, but to your satisfaction. I do think this brings us full circle to this idea of feelings. What does it mean not just to understand a situation or even to imagine the experience, but to be beside someone? and be present to that experience. And not offering help, but offering the offer of help. What a brilliant insight that is. Two other interviews that you might like if you enjoyed this chat with my friend Peter, Katie Milkman, she's mentioned in the conversation, and that conversation is called You Are Predictably Imperfect, such a nice thing to remember. And then my friend Chris Casey Carter, That conversation, and you'll understand why I'm recommending it, is called Feeling All the Feelings. If you'd like to know more about Peter, bregmanpartners.com is the website. And you'll also find him as a podcast, the Bregman Leadership Podcast. And I've been on that two or three times. So if you like the tables being turned, that's the place to go. Thank you for listening. Thank you for any support you've given the podcast with a rating or a review. I really appreciate that. Thank you for passing the word along. I mean, if you like this conversation with Peter, please think of somebody and send it to them, encourage them to listen. It is a slow build, building an audience, but we're doing it. And I appreciate all the help you've given me around that. Thank you. You're awesome and you're doing great.